All right, you ready to go? I'm ready to go. There's this balance between what is the, the minimum amount of data that we need to generate to answer our research question so that we can maximize our throughput and also minimize our cost. So there's a couple different considerations I think a lot of people don't necessarily take into account when they don't have a scientific background. But I do think it's very important to have advisors and leadership who understand that scientific process and the scientific rigor behind bringing technology to market. So what we did is use machine learning approach to pull out thousands of thousands of random features and realize that, hey, these four features actually allow us to differentiate these two populations from one another. So today we operate primarily as a CRO where clients come to us with questions that range from imaging, digital pathology, um, in vitro organoid model development, all different types of drug discovery questions that they have, they come to us and leverage our expertise in data processing, imaging, image analysis, and advanced in vitro biology. Hello, and welcome to the Digital Biotech Podcast, a community of innovators at the intersection of science and data. Be sure to check out the website at digitalbiotech.com and sign up for our newsletter. So you haven't heard from me before. I'll be hosting today's podcast. My name is Steve McCoy, and I'm a member of Tetra Science, a data platform for life sciences R&D. Today, we're joined by Michael Johnson. Michael comes to us from Visicol, where he is the co-founder and CEO. Michael, a Forbes 30 under 30 honoree, founded Visicol with his fellow PhD candidate Thomas Villani and his colleague Nick Kreider. Michael has a diverse background with experiences in both the technical and business considerations of running a biotech business. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start with your background? Can you tell us a little bit more about your personal story? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in New Jersey, central Jersey, um, went to Somerville High School. And after graduating from high school, I was always very passionate about science and decided to go to Muhlenberg College in Allentown, PA to major in biology. And at the time, I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And I think all four years of college, I really still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I thought I wanted to go into teaching. I kind of like research, but I didn't really understand what careers were out there um, in the science field. So after I graduated from Muhlenberg College, I went and interned with uh, NASA. So out in California, I worked for them for about six months. And during that period of time, I realized that research was a real career. And through science, you could do incredible things and solve really big problems. So I had my passion for science all along, but decided to go into a career in research and realized through working at NASA, to be a real scientist, I needed to have a PhD. I needed to learn more about how to be a scientist and the scientific process. So after um, a year of being out of undergrad, I went back to get my PhD at Rutgers University. And during my PhD, I focused primarily actually on biofuels, trying to figure out if we can create a sustainable fuel from algae. So the pond scum you see in ponds in uh, the spring and fall. And uh, through that project, I met a lot of great people and realized this true passion I had for science. And it was during that period of time that I also worked at Johnson & Johnson, so I gained some commercial experience about how to run um, a science business, looking at marketing and different types of business. And then also got a National Science Foundation Fellowship, which allowed me to look into all different types of research questions. 
And it was through that that I met my co-founder of Visicol, Tom Volani, who was working on this uh, tissue clearing reagent for trying to make tissues transparent so you could image them in 3D. My background was in imaging through NASA, but I didn't really have uh, much of a background in this specific space that Tom was working in. But I started working with Tom, and after about a year and a half, we realized that we had this really great technology for imaging tissues, and ultimately decided to spin Visicol out of Rutgers University in 2016, raised a bit of venture capital funding. And from there, we're kind of off the races with building a company. And a lot's happened the last two and a half years since then. That's awesome. Really exciting. So before getting into VisiCall, I'd love to get a better understanding of what are some of the experiences or innovations from that wide range background that you have that have proven to be some of the most impactful over your career? Was it the commercial experience at Janssen? Could you elaborate on that? I think there's two. The first of which was when I first started working at NASA, I got out there and I got in a room with probably the smartest people I'd ever met, all people my age who had great disciplines, great backgrounds. And I was thrown into a project where my goal was to try and figure out if you could determine the mass of a ship by taking a picture from a satellite or a plane. Has a bunch of different applications, but I realized that I had no experience in this field whatsoever. So what it taught me was that if you get thrown into a field that you know nothing about, as a scientist, you should have the ability to learn about that field and become an expert in it. So that really taught me how to persevere in science and how to learn something totally new, which I think is very impactful for anything. It allowed me to really dive into physical head first, even though I had no idea what I was doing in that space either. But working at uh, Johnson & Johnson was really impactful. It's a giant corporation for sure, but it taught me all about business, how to work with other people, and a lot of the soft skills that I didn't have as a scientist. And a lot of scientists, founders, I think, take business for granted and say, it's, you know, it's very easy. I can just pick it up. Don't worry about it. But there's a lot of uh, soft skills to it. There's a lot of things you do need to pick up. And spending two, three years at Johnson Johnson definitely gave me a lot of those skills that I needed. Can you give us some examples, you know, especially coming from a, a founder's perspective, But can you give us some examples of what innovations or projects that you've fallen short on in the past? So we'll spend a lot of time talking about the success of Visicall and all of that. But I think our audience really likes to hear, you know, where have those stumbling points been? And what are maybe it's some of those soft touches that you talk about being a CEO? Certainly. Yeah. During the process, failure is a common experience for any founder. And it's raising money. It's trying to develop a product. It's trying to bring something to market. You're failing constantly. And part of the reason is just because no one's ever done what you're trying to do exactly before. And there's no guidance. There's no book you can read. So a lot of you figure out by failing. I would say one of the things that we struggled with early on is we were trying to develop products that we were selling to researchers for them to use in their labs. And as a scientist, we always thought, well, the product works perfectly. Of course, we could sell it to these researchers. But we realized is that all the things that go into that user experience, the pamphlet that comes with the product, what the box looks like, how it's shipped, what directions they get, when you email them, all these little tiny things, which seem to be not important, are incredibly important. So when we first started launching some products as a company, we had a very low success rate in how customers opened up those products and were able to use them. And it wasn't due to the product itself that from a technical perspective was great. It was all the information surrounding that and the user experience. That was something I think we fell short on initially, but through getting lots of customer feedback, we were able to improve those products and really bring some of the market that was impactful for our research customers. In your opinion, what's been across the board the single biggest leap in life sciences over the past 20 years? I would say the coolest thing are IPSC cells. Um, 
it's it's so cool that we can go ahead and we can take adult cells, put them back to stem cells, and then engineer them into anything we need for a drug discovery research question. When I first saw that paper from Yamanaka, I was you know blown away. It's science fiction. You read it and you're like, that's that's possible. That's that's crazy. And um, you know, of course, that has allowed us to answer all different types of cell biology questions that we were not able to answer just a few years ago. So I think for me, that was just very cool, and then also just very impactful. We haven't really seen, I guess, the therapeutic impacts of that just yet, but they'll definitely be coming down the line. Let's dive into Visicol a bit now. So we appreciate the input that you have on the industry and learning a bit about your background. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the company in more detail. And uh, for the, the, the layperson or the non-scientist in our audience, let's go with the simple explanation first, and then we can move in a more deep dive direction. Absolutely. So our company originally started in 2016 as a products company. So we had products which were reagents that allowed researchers to make tissues transparent so they could easily image a whole mouse brain, a whole biopsy in 3D instead of having to section it into a few small, thin slices. But after about a year, year and a half of doing that, what we realized is that we had a great product, but as a small startup company, it's incredibly challenging to sell a product to researchers. It's a very um, small dollar amount that you're getting from researchers. You have to be at all the conferences, all the trade shows. It's very inefficient for a small company to do that. So what we decided to do about a year and a half um, ago was go from a products company to a services company. So we took our products and we pushed them off distributors who now sell them for us. And what it allowed us to do was we still manufacture the products, but we're focused 100% today on services. So taking those products that we developed and also technologies that we've developed for image processing, for cell culturing, for advanced drug discovery uh, solutions, and offer them to pharma clients through a contract research business. So today we operate primarily as a CRO where clients come to us with questions that range from imaging, digital pathology, um, in vitro organoid model development, all different types of drug discovery questions that they have, they come to us and leverage our expertise in data processing, imaging, image analysis, and advanced in vitro biology. And how do those separate you from the competition that's out there? Where do you see the really unique characteristics of Visicol that say, separate you from another CRO offering similar services? So for us, I would say we are unique as a CRO as we have a number of proprietary technologies for imaging and image analysis. So we have, we're the only CRO that's able to image tissues in 3D using tissue clearing, using different types of labeling. So there's a lot of unique things that we can do from a technology standpoint. But I would say what really separates us from a lot of other CROs is the way we approach projects. We don't have just a standard catalog of assays. We have standard assays of course, but a lot of our customers come to us for more custom solutions. So they ask us to really solve complex problems that they can't address internally or don't have the funds to or don't have the time to do internally, and we become an extension of their drug discovery team. So we have a number of PhD scientists on our team with different expertise, which we leverage to help our customers with really their most complex questions that they have. So let's let's talk about the commercial side of the business to an extent and, and the operational side. How large is the company right now? So right now we have 14 people. Okay. So one of the benefits of being a product company is that in a lot of ways you can rinse, wash, repeat, and tweak a product over a period of time. Yes. How have you found running a services-based company to be 
a bit different? And where do you find some of the challenges in scaling that company? Yeah, with products, I would say you could scale much faster. You can move much faster. There can be a lot more competition for your products. And one day, your value of your company could go down a lot if there's a new product on the market. With a service business in the CRO space, it's really all relationship-driven. You have relationships with clients that are multi-year relationships. You're not talking to somebody today and they're buying your service tomorrow. It could be two or three years down the road. So it's really building those relationships with folks in the space, building trust, uh, publishing papers with people, partnering. And really, that was the switch for us, that it was not um, it was not a quick turnaround time. It was trying to develop relationships with a, sm- a few small companies, or a few companies instead of lot- lots and lots of researchers. So it's a different type of business model. And I would say for us, the thing that um, is most challenging is just making sure we can get in front of as many people as possible, talk to them, give seminars, show them exactly what we do, and show them where we fit in and why we're different and why they should work with us. So it's a um, little more boots on the ground, but with fewer customers, which allows us to really build those relationships. So were you at JPM this past week? I was not at JPM. I think for us, our target is primarily PhD scientists or uh, MD, PhDs at pharma companies who are in the labs. They're wearing lab coats every day. They're not necessarily pipetting anymore, but they are designing the research and they're in the lab. So those people will primarily not be at JP Morgan. We're not trying to go ahead and have uh, large partnerships with major pharma companies. We're really focused on the individual researcher and research groups and trying to partner with them specifically. So our sales process is highly technical and nature. I think a lot of the you know, BD people at JP Morgan would not be involved in that process whatsoever. I think if we wanted to go a more strategic route in the future and partner with some CROs, offer our services more globally, that would be a great opportunity. But for right now, we're really focused on just the individual researcher. So that relationship-based focus must be really valuable to expanding the business as well, right? Because if I'm a scientist at Novartis and I leave to go to Pfizer, but with that relationships there, that can help spread the business a bit. Has that been the main, without giving away all your secrets, has that been the main way you've really sort of scaled from the commercial aspect? What's allowed us to scale, we've tried everything. As a small company, you need to try all different avenues to go. And we still actively do everything from uh, podcasts here, webinars, uh, trade shows, conferences, posters, talks. But the thing I think that's been most impactful for us is giving seminars. As a research-focused company, what we try and do is we go to pharma companies and we talk to them about the cool new things that we're working on. So we'll give some case studies of cutting-edge projects that we've done, go and talk about very specific problems that could apply to them that we've focused on and worked on. And that's been great. We'll go into a room, we'll give a seminar, um, very uh, scientific and technically focused. But someone in that room will always say, hey, that's really cool. Could you do this? And that's where a lot of those new projects come from. Or that person who's worked with us before goes to Pfizer or goes to BMS. And they forward someone else to us or they bring new folks from their team to us. So that relationship and just going out and physically talking to somebody has been very impactful for us. Absolutely. So some of those cool new things, what is Visicall doing that's, say, over the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months, setting both you and your customers up for success from an innovation standpoint? So we, uh, we are continually always trying to develop new tech. We, of course, operate as a contract research organization, but what makes us different is that we invest a lot of our employees' time and researchers' time into developing new technologies, so not just kind of expanding our base assays and services, but really building new things. So we have a number of uh, National Science Foundation, National Institute of Health grants, which allow us to build cool new things for um, our services. But I would say the two things I'm most excited about are our digital pathology side of our business, 
business and our 3D cell culture side of our business. In the last few years, a lot of research groups have transitioned from traditional 2D cell culture models to more complex biology organoids, trying to build really complex biology in a dish that better mimics what's going on within the body so they can reduce the price of overall drug discovery and drug development. And we've been building a number of uh, models in that space, so 3D cell culture models. We have an open source initiative we just launched where we're trying to provide protocols and guidance to build consensus in this new space about which models are best for different types of research questions. And on the digital pathology side, we recently built one of the first assays that's gone um, in front of the FDA for characterizing tissues using a machine learning approach. And we're starting to build out tools that are not only useful on a research side, but also can be validated for clinical applications. And I find that to be probably one of the most exciting things that we do, because we're better informing clinicians about what decisions to make in the clinic. So that's a good transition to the next segment that we have here on future innovations. So I'd love to get a sense of, you know, what major trends outside of machine learning do you see beginning to emerge in the biotech industry? And as a two-part question, I'd also like to dive into the machine learning bit a bit more. So perhaps we should start there. So in your opinion, why do you think the pharmaceutical biotech life science industry to date has been so reluctant to adopt, say, a machine learning, deep learning, AI, whatever you want to call it, strategy? Is it you know, the limitation of resources or knowledge about the type of technology? Is it uh, skepticism that it provides value? I believe we're seeing more and more companies adopt those types of technologies, but it still hasn't been as widespread as we've seen in other industries. Right. We've seen in our space, so our whole goal of our company is to turn tissues and 3D cell culture biology into quantitative data sets that we can then mine for actual insights. The idea is to take a tissue and turn it into some kind of useful graph or report that can be used to better inform a drug discovery decision. And what we have seen is that, um, you know, I personally feel that these technologies have come around the last few years. They're great. They can be very useful, but they're not being adopted at the rate that I feel they should be. And I think part of the reason, especially in our space, is um, the folks who've done the characterization of tissues for decades um, over a century have done it by eye. So a person looks at a slide, they say, yes, you have cancer or the tissue is characterized in this particular way. They write up a brief little report and they send that out. The file is not digitized, even though there's huge amounts of data on that slide that could be useful. I think one of the things that slowed that adoption down is validation. Those pathologists have done it that way for a century. And to change that paradigm is really challenging. And one of the things I think a lot of folks have hesitation about is they don't really understand how a lot of these tools work. So in developing an assay um, that would go in front of the FDA, we realized that a lot of the approaches that are out there today cannot be used because they cannot be validated. So the approach that we took for a specific project with a customer, we used machine learning approach where we used um, a way to actually validate validate it through follow-up uh, pathology, and also we could show exactly how the algorithm's working, what's driving it. Using these black box approaches are really hard for regulators and companies to digest because they don't know what's driving that decision, and they can't put all their faith in something before they understand how it even works. So I think um, there are definitely tools that will be adopted much sooner than others, but a lot of the reticency has just been that's the way it's been done for decades and decades, and it's hard to change that paradigm. Do you see an emergence of or convergence, I should say, between biotech and non-scientific disciplines outside of things like machine learning? Yeah, so 
I think certainly any biotech company, you need those other disciplines to make it successful. You need all of them converging together. And you can't just be a scientific founder and say, forget all other stuff. We'll just have the best technology in the world and everybody will beat our door down to get it. That's just not how it works. So I think, um, yeah, th that convergence is always happening. And running a biotech company, you need all those other pieces for sure. But I guess what always gives me um, caution is that when folks who don't understand biotech start to run biotech companies, because one of the things which is unique about biotech and science is in engineering, you can put more resources, you can put more people to move something faster. But in biotech, you can't just throw more resources at a question to move faster. It's incredibly inefficient to have multiple parallel experiments. So really, biotech has like a very distinct rate at which it can grow. And when I think these non-scientific disciplines get involved, sometimes they try and push things faster than they can go. And I think the worst case scenario of that, of course, is um, Theranos, where you're trying to push something beyond what the technology can handle, beyond what you can develop in a certain period of time. And that gets very dangerous to not only the company, but also potentially the consumer of that technology. So there's, there's definitely an importance, but I do think it's very important to have advisors and leadership who understand that scientific process and the scientific rigor behind bringing technology to market. Have you read Bad Blood? I have, yes. It's awesome. Yeah, it's a very good book. I think I read it in about a day because I was so intrigued to go through it. And reading through it, you're like, this can't be real. There's no way this actually happened. It's like a, like a spy novel, you know, paying people off, hundreds of thousands of dollars of lawyers to put people down. It's just unbelievable, really. In a lot of ways, it seemed more about the fundraising itself than actually developing a product, right? And sort of being success was based off going through Series B, Series right. C, and getting those astronomical figures. I think everyone wanted that story so bad to be true. But I know when I first heard about this, I guess you know, five or six years ago, that you know someone was so smart to drop out of Stanford after a year that they knew so much they were going to turn this whole industry on their head. You know, I call that, that that's not going to happen. That can't be true. Maybe in tech, you can be an 18-year-old founder. But in this specific space, you don't know more than people have been doing this for 40 years. You do need to put your time in and learn. So that story to me from the start was just unbelievable. But I think Elizabeth Holmes, to her credit, I think from the beginning, she did have the best interest in mind. She really did want it to work. She wasn't going out and trying to lie and deceive all these investors. It just got way in over her head. And it just totally snowballed out of control. And I think, um, you know, investors forced her to grow at a certain rate. She felt the pressure, started to tell some little lies, which turned into much bigger lies. And then, uh, yeah, it just got totally out of control. Message to the audience, pick up Bad Blood if you have <laughs> not read it yet, especially before the Jennifer Lawrence movie comes out on it. So cool. So name of the podcast, Digital Biotech. The digital biotech we define as companies that are data-driven, agile, and leverage a network of collaborators. What are your thoughts on this concept and what aspects of a digital biotech organization resonate with a company like Visicol? For us, what's most important about that is for years and years, we've always had a very human-driven approach to how we interpret data and how we interpret, in our situation, images from slides. And I think what we've realized in the last few years is we now have the tools to generate huge amounts of data. We also have the tools to process huge amounts of data and to turn them into something that's actually human-readable. So we can generate terabytes of imaging data, distill it down into something useful, and give somebody a one-page PDF report that says this compound works better than that compound. Of course, it's not quite that simple, but really, I think that's what resonates with us, is that we're using way more data than a person could ever interpret to make a better decision. We recently worked on a project where we had um, two types of tissues that we're trying to characterize for a client. The client knew they were different, but had no idea why they were different. And a person couldn't look at those two populations of data and say, hey, if this feature is different, then that puts it in that bucket or it puts it in that bucket. So what we did is use machine learning approach to pull out thousands of thousands of random 
random features and realize that, hey, these four features actually allow us to differentiate these two populations from one another. And through doing that, we realize that, hey, these, these biomarkers, a person could never, ever see. They would never pick them up. They would never notice them. But there are millions of those biomarkers in every tissue that we're not looking at, we're not characterizing, we're not trying to see if they're significant today. So that's what I see as really cool, is finding things that a person could never find. So last three questions, one taking place in the past, one in the present, and one in the future. Scientific software has been around for 20 plus years now. What do you think is different about software that you're using in your organization today than, say, where we were in 1999? Well, in 99, I was uh, 10 years old, so I wasn't using much software back then. But um, I think it was Oregon Trail was out back yeah. then, so <laughs> it's come a long way since then. I think what's, what's different is our ability to actually process the data, just the, the hardware infrastructure that's in place today, and you know, things like AWS that we can transport data to and have processing done elsewhere. That has really opened up the door for small companies to have access to huge computing power to answer really complicated questions. So I think the barrier to adoption for companies has gone down dramatically, that a small company can have incredibly powerful software to answer really complicated questions, which allows them to move faster. And that wasn't around a few years ago, and you had to invest millions of dollars in hardware and software equipment just to get off the ground. Now, today, what are some of the unexpected insights you've observed through the digitization of life sciences? One of the things that we have seen in our field is, you would ask before about what happens when people outside of biotech get into biotech. What we've seen is a lot of tech companies have tried to get into biotech. And I think a common misconception that I've seen is that they always assume that more data is better. That if we have more data, we can use it and it's useful. But the thing in science is generating more data reduces your throughput. It reduces your sample size. And sample size and throughput are very important for certain types of questions. So there's this balance between what is the, the minimum amount of data that we need to generate to answer our research question so that we can maximize our throughput and also minimize our cost. So there's a couple different considerations I think a lot of people don't necessarily take into account when they don't have a scientific background, where instead of generating huge amounts of data from a small number of samples, if you generated smaller amounts of data from lots of samples, it's actually better for a lot of different types of research questions. So I think that's a, a misconception that I see a lot is that we, we don't necessarily need to generate more data, and it could actually be worse, and we could be misleading for some questions. Absolutely. So I definitely see that a lot. We see that quite a bit with people as well, not understanding that perhaps adding more data could lessen the quality of the data overall and actually lead them to insights that may not be for the best interest of their research purposes. Right. So finally, what do you think the industry will look like in a decade from now? So in, in our field, and I guess more generally digital biotech, where I see it going is, you know, of course, having a lot more folks involved in the processing of data, the analysis of data, and turning data into insights. I think today, biotech um, is adopting data solutions and trying to get to be more you know, digital. But right now, I see there being less of those folks than there probably should be. So in our field of imaging and pathology today, it's a clinician who's looking at a glass microscope slide with their eyes and saying, yes, you have cancer. Here's the grade. Here's the stage. I see in that particular paradigm in 10 or 20 years that that'll be a computer making that decision. It'll say, hey, you'd have this grade in this stage, but you also have these 80 other features which are correlated with these things. So you might have um, susceptibility to this other condition or your tumor might have a very high probability of coming back based upon correlations to this huge bank of data that we have access to. So I think making decisions in the future will be much more driven by computers. I hate to say that all computers will make the decisions and people won't be involved in the process, but I do see us shifting more and more towards that for certain types of questions where computers are just much better suited than people are. 
Awesome. And I lied. One more question. Well, two-parter. Prediction for this weekend and prediction for the Super Bowl. Well, I'm up in New England, so I kind of have to say the Patriots. My wife's a big Patriots fan. I've always been a big Tom Brady fan, so I would say yeah, I'll be rooting for Tom Brady, especially after last weekend. (laughs) Awesome. Well, this has been great, Michael. Thanks for coming by today and joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.